0: Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm taking up Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. This is going to be a long chapter because this is a complicated subject. It might take five or six audios to get through the chapter, but we'll take it easy and I'm going to go through it in great detail. I'm going to take an orthodox preterist viewpoint of the Olivet Discourse. I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to refute the futurist interpretation, which I think is uh, wrong on many counts, but I, I warn you in advance, I'm going to assume and try to also prove the preterist, the orthodox preterist viewpoint of of the Olivet Discourse, which is that all the events in the Discourse were to be fulfilled before that generation then living was complete, which is about 40 years, and 40 years after Jesus' death in AD 30 is AD 70, when when the Temple was destroyed in Jerusalem, and the old rabbinic murderous system of the Jews was wiped out of the Jewish leaders was wiped out. Matthew 24, verse 1. As Jesus left and was going out of the temple complex, his disciples came up and called his attention to the temple buildings. Jesus left where? He left the temple complex because that's where he was teaching all day Tuesday of Passion Week. And in this teaching all day, he gave about three parables talking about how the kingdom was going to be taken away from the Jews and given to the Gentiles who can produce fruit of the kingdom, how the their house was going to be left desolate well excuse me the the parables actually said that god was going to turn come back and burn down their city and then he at the end of the uh chapter 23 after pronouncing eight woes on the pharisees he said your house is left to you desolate and so in the house of course was the temple so the disciples had all this in their mind as they left on tuesday going back to the mount of olives where they were staying And this explains why his disciples came up at the end of verse 1 in Matthew 24. His disciples came up and called his attention to the temple buildings. Now, the reason they did that was because Jesus had just finished saying that the temple was going down. The house was going to be left desolate. The city was going to be burnt down. And this was something that was off their radar scope. They're thinking about an earthly messianic kingdom. They're not thinking about the temple getting wiped out. And so basically what they're saying is, look at these beautiful buildings here. How in the world can you say that they're going to be torn down? So that's our background. Now, there are other parallel passages in which the Olivet Discourse is recorded, for example, in Mark 13 and Luke 21, and we will very rarely need to return there. Every now and then we will, but not often, because most of the Olivet Discourse is in Matthew 24. Now, my main sources, let me just give you some bibliography here. If you want to read something good about... The Olivet Discourse from an Orthodox Preterist source. You can read Gary DeMar's Last Day's Madness, and the best, in my, even better than DeMar's Last Day's Madness, in my opinion, is D.D. Warren's It's Not the End of the World, which you can get on Kindle for a very reasonable price, and she does an excellent job of explaining the Orthodox Preterist viewpoint. There are other works, too. I think The Great Tribulation by Kenneth Gentry, I think, is one, if I remember correctly, but Anyway, those two are good. Also, my commentators that I've been using, uh, John Gill and Adam Clark, they are not specifically preterist, but they wrote in the 1800s before dispensationalists came around with their pre-trib, pre-mill fantasy stuff. And they often took preterist positions without being consciously an orthodox preterist. They just said, yeah, this refers to 87, and it was no big deal. Of course, it's a big deal now because we've been so brainwashed by the opposing views. Now, also, let me... point out that I need to warn you that when I say preterist, I mean Orthodox preterist because there are a lot of heretical preterists out there, in fact more than they are Orthodox preterists, who say that everything happened in eighty seventy, not just the destruction of the temple and Jesus is coming in judgment on the temple, but they say that the resurrection of the dead occurred in eighty seventy and Jesus came back to establish his future state, his his kingdom. And so we're living in heaven now. We're living in the last state right now. And the devil has been thrown into the lake of fire right now and all this other nonsense. It's absolute her- heresy. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead because the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. So therefore, we're not going to get resurrected. We're just going to rot in our graves. So this is a ter- It's a damnable heresy, and I don't want to be associated with it. So therefore, I often, as much as I can, I will try to say orthodox preterists. Now, why is the o- all of it, discourse notoriously difficult. Well, it's because some of the passages appear futurist and some appear preterist. It makes no sense to split them up into two different categories to say part of the discourse was referring to 8070 and part was referring to the end of the world. Because Jesus would be jumping around with no contextual indicators to tell his listeners that he was planning to jump, which would lead to nothing but confusion. So the best procedure is to put all of the events of the discourse into one of the other categories. That is on the surface of it is not an easy task to do. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna put all the events in eighty seventy in, in the period I should say between eighty thirty and eighty seventy. It's easy for me to do now but but it but on the surface it's not, especially when you have a mindset that's been conditioned by Hal Lindsay and Tim LaHaye. So before we get started we need to talk about the context of the Olivet Discourse. This is extremely important in order to understand the discourse. As I previously alluded to, Jesus had just condemned the Pharisees in that Tuesday teaching in the, te- in, in the temple complex. For example, at the near the end of Matthew 23, the previous chapter, while he was still in Jerusalem, he said this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets... And stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, yet you are not willing. And of course, this Jerusalem who kills the prophets is referring to the Jerusalems about to kill the greatest prophet of them all, Jesus. Now, Jesus says, You, Jerusalem, Pharisees, Sadducees, you're not willing to be gathered together under Jesus' wings. You're not willing. So therefore, next verse, see, Jesus says, verse 38 in Matthew 23, see, your house is left to you desolate. Now, of course, house is temple. Left to you desolate, that means destroyed. So that is the immediate context of the Olivet Discourse, is the destruction of Jerusalem. More specifically, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So the context is extremely important here. Now, one other point of introduction is, as we go through the discourse, we can see that many of the signs that Jesus predicted to tell us when all these things were going to take place, the destruction of the temple and so forth, and his coming in the end of the, end of the age, these signs could happen both in the past and the future. For example, false messiahs. You can have false messiahs in 80, right before 8070, and you can have them at the end of the world. Same thing with earthquakes. There have been earthquakes all throughout time. So that's not enough to tie down the timing of the events of the Olivet Discourse, false messiahs and earthquakes and so forth. Rumors of wars. They've always been false messiahs, earthquakes, and rumors of wars. But there's only been one destruction of the temple. So we need to tie all of these ambiguous signs, we need to give them specificity by referring them to the time of the destruction of the temple, which we know from history was AD 70. Our Jesus left that temple for the last time Tuesday evening, heading back to the Mount of Olives. It's the last time he was ever going to go back into that temple. As he was leaving with the disciples, as I mentioned earlier, the disciples wanted him to reverse his condemnation on the temple, as John Gill says. Jesus had said, your house is left to you desolate. They walk out of Jerusalem. They're on the road. They turn around, look at the magnificent temple, which I'm going to describe for you in a minute. And it really was magnificent. And they're saying, what do you mean the house is going to be left desolate? What kind of a messianic kingdom are you trying to set up, Jesus? That's what they're thinking. They were incredulous that something so magnificent could be destroyed, as John Gill says. It was hard to imagine. The disciples are thinking about a Messianic kingdom, and Jesus keeps telling them things like, I'm going to die, I'm going to get crucified, and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Now, a destroyed temple didn't fit in with their plans of a glorious Messianic kingdom because the temple was the center of worship for the entire world. It was the glory and beauty of the earth. Now, I'm going to give you some quotes from Josephus to give you a feel for what that temple looked back as the disciples, and Jesus turned back and looked at it. Quote, This is from Josephus. Quote, the exterior wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye, for being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no longer up. Then it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. So you either saw gold or you saw the whitewashed stones and it was beautiful here's another quote from josephus quote the temple had doors also at the entrance and lintels over them they the doors were adorned with embroidered veils with their flowers of purple and pillars interwoven and over these but under their crown work over these pillars but under the crown work was spread a golden vine with its branches hanging down from a great height the largeness and fine workmanship of which was a surprising sight to the spectators, to see what vast materials there were and with what great skill the workmanship was done. He also encompassed the entire temple with very large cloisters, contriving them to be in due proportion thereto, and he laid out larger sums of money upon them than had been done before him. Till it seemed, this is Herod he's talking about. Till it seemed, Herod the Great. Till it seemed that no one else had so greatly adorned the temple as he, Herod the Great, had done. There was a large wall to both the cloisters, which wall was itself the most prodigious work that was ever heard of by man. He also built a wall below, beginning at the bottom, which was encompassed by a deep valley. And at the south side, he laid rocks together and bound them one to another with lead and included some of the inner parts till it proceeded to a great height. Until both the largeness of the square edifice and its altitude were immense, until the vastness of the stones in the front were plainly visible on the outside, yet so that the inward parts were fastened together with iron, and preserved the joints immovable for all future times. And round about the entire temple were fixed the spoils taken from barbarous nations. All these had been dedicated to the temple by Herod, with the addition of these he had taken from the Arabians. Quite a magnificent sight. The Jews believed that God himself would manifest himself there in that temple. So for Jesus to say that the temple was going to be left desolate and destroyed was just something that was unheard of to the disciples. They couldn't picture it. And plus, there was no indication that political troubles might topple the temple because those political troubles didn't happen until in the 60s when the Romans had this guy, I think his name was Flavius, I can't remember his name, but he was a Roman governor who started extorting the Jews, acting arrogant, I think he was robbing uh, the silver, uh, robbing money out of the temple, and so the Jews got upset. And next thing you know, you got the Jewish War. But that was not on the horizon politically when Jesus was talking. The disciples had no indication that there would be any kind of political upheaval that would destroy this magnificent temple. And plus, they were thinking of a Messianic kingdom. So, yeah, the the disciples were having a hard time. Now, Jesus's answer. And verse 2 seems to indicate that the disciples were absolutely incredulous at the fall of the temple being destroyed, because in verse 2, Jesus says this, Then he, Jesus, replied to them, his disciples, Don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. So he's, he's having to be very emphatic here to overcome their credulity. One little point before we go to p- verse 2. Jesus is talking about the temple that was living in Jesus' time. Because, he says, because he's pointing to it. Because in verse 2, he says, I assure you, not one stone would be left here. Here. Do you see all these things? They're looking at it and seeing these things. And he's talking about stones here. He's not talking about a rebuilt temple in the future. That is dispensationalist moonshine. Made-up stuff. That doesn't have a thing to do with the Olivet Discourse. So, the opening context of the Olivet Discourse is obviously, back then, in A.D. 30, not at the end of the world. And yet, futurists refer most of the Olivet Discourse to the future. I think some futurists do take these first three verses to refer to the destruction of the temple because it's so obvious. But I, I think I've also heard of some dispensationalists trying to take the whole thing. Whenever you talk, hear dispensationalists and futurists talk about revived things, like the revived Roman Empire, they're getting away from the idea that what the Bible is talking about is something that already existed, in there, and they're postulating something that happens in the future. They speculate. I prefer... Historical fact to speculations because anybody can speculate about the future. All right, verse 2, Matthew 24. Let me read that again. Then he, Jesus, replied to them, the disciples, Don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. Now let's talk about the stones that Jesus referred to. Not stone, one stone will be left here, all of them will be thrown down, all of them will be fallen to the ground. These stones were tremendous. Some were 45 cubits long, 5 cubits high, and 6 cubits wide, according to Gill, a cubit. Of course, we don't think in terms of cubits. There were two types of cubits, actually, a royal cubit and a normal cubit. But let's say it was a cubit that was 18 inches long. It's the one I always thought of. You're talking about a huge stone. The NIV Study Bible puts it in English terms. One stone at the southwest corner was some 36 feet long. That's humongous. Josephus said, whatever was not overlaid with gold was the purest white. So the stones were either covered with gold or they were shiny white. The stone pillars, I'm talking about stones in the the walls now, but now the walls of the temple. Now let's talk about the stone pillars of the temple. Here's a quote from Josephus. In the porches, four rows of pillars. The thickness of each pillar was as much as three men. And their arms stretched out and joined together could grasp the length twenty-seven feet, and the number of them, and hundred and sixty-two, and beautiful to a miracle. Titus, the Roman general who eventually destroyed Jerusalem in 87, he was said to be astonished at the size of the pillars. This is John Gill citing the second-century Christian chronicler Hegesippus. Now, some people think that the stones that Jesus was referring to were not necessarily just the stones in the wall or the stone pillars, but the precious stones jewels which decorated the walls. Herod gave a, gold, a golden vine for one of its decorations, my NIV study Bible says, and the grape clusters of that golden wine were as tall as a man, gold grapes hanging on the walls. Luke chapter twenty one, verse five, and some were as some were talking about the temple complex, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. This is a parallel version of the Olivet discourse, and that and Luke mentions The walls that were adorned with beautiful stones. Well, whatever, let's just say it's all. The walls, the pillars, and the beautiful jewels on the walls, all going to be thrown down. And that fulfilled an Old Testament prophecy in Micah chapter 3, verses 11 through 12. Her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. Talking about Israel. Her priests teach for payment, sort of like American pastors do. And her prophets practice divination for money. Of course, I'm probably being over. I've probably got to be careful here. What I mean is uh, I don't believe in paid pastors, okay? Let's put it that way. And I realize that some people can take pay, but they're doing it for the real reason. This is like an NBA player can play basketball, not because he's getting paid millions of dollars, but because he loves the game. But I'll tell you what, it's hard not to judge their motives, is it not? But anyway, her pre-speech for payment, her prophets practice divination for money, Yet they lean on the Lord, saying, Isn't the Lord among us? No disaster will overtake us. Therefore, because of you, because of you fake prophets false priests, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become ruins, and the hill of the Temple Mount will be a thicket. So Jesus is basically seconding Micah here and says, Temple's going down. Micah 3, verse 11 Now, of course, and I've got to add Zion's here, going here be that plowed Micah, like, like a field. Jerusalem in the will become 8th century B.C. He could have been predicting the... Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 587-586 B.C. Adam Clark believes it's eighty seventy, so it's a little bit ambiguous. Plowed like a field, John Gill points out, means that the stones would not only have to be thrown down, they would have to be taken away. Jesus also predicted the destruction of Jerusalem in another place. This is in Luke 19, which is before the Olivet Discourse. As he approached and saw the city... He wept over it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. Of course, bringing peace would be to accept the Messiah, which they didn't. But now it is hidden from your eyes, not because God didn't like them, but because they deserved it. It was judicial punishment. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you. That's the Romans who built put siege walls all around the city. Your enemies will surround you and hem you in on every side, just like the Romans did. They will crush you and your children within you to the ground, just like the Romans did in AD 70. and they will not leave one stone on another in you. Jesus is what he predicted to the disciples in Alvin discourse. He had already told them earlier, a couple of chapters earlier in Luke, actually. They will not leave one stone on another in you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Messiah has visited them, and they didn't recognize the, the Messiah. Now, in destroying the temple, God foreclosed an attempt to reestablish the Old Testament types and shadows. The temple, of course, is a type and a shadow of the New Testament church in which the Holy Spirit dwells. The temple was supposed to be a place in which God dwelled, at least it was before the, before the Jews profaned it. Now, some things historically have kept that temple from being rebuilt for 2,000 years. It's still not rebuilt. First of all, Emperor Julian the Apostate tried to rebuild it because he was going to try to overcome that prophecy about one stone on another. He was in, what was his dates three mid-300s, I think he was. Well, we're going to show those terrible Christians. We're going to rebuild the temple and show that Jesus' prophecy about not leaving one stone on another. I don't know how that would have overturned the prophecy because the, the temple had gotten scattered. There was nothing about it not being rebuilt. But anyway, Julian the Apostate thought he could stick his eye in the, finger in the eye of Christians, but he failed. Then there's Bar Kokhba, the famous Bar Kokhba revolt, 2nd century A.D., if my memory is correct, that famous revolt. During the time of the Emperor Hadrian, I believe it was the Romans crushed it to the ground, they failed to get the temple rebuilt and then, of course, the Muslims in the seventh century, or whatever they did I't the Muslims came along in the seventh century, and at some point they put the dome of the rock on top of the temple site there and so the temple is gone, and there's a Muslim temple on top of it, and it's been there for a long, long time, and it's still there. In fact, the Muslims are now controlling that site even though it's in the middle of israel and we were, I went on a tour, and they we couldn't get up. I wanted to go inside that thing and see it. Oh, no, the Muslims control it. We can't get you in there. Jesus' words about the embankment and about the rocks, not one stone being left on top of another, were fulfilled literally in AD 70. And here's a quote from Josephus as quoted by Adam Clark. Quote, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the whole city and temple except the three towers, Phacelus, Hippocus and Mariamne, and a part of the Western Wall, and these were spared, But for all the rest of the wall, it was laid so completely even with the ground by those who dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. This was a perfectly punctuated end to the Jewish rabbinic regime. It showed that the Old Testament sacrificial system was over and done, and from now on, the only sacrifice that people can use to get to God, to get to Yahweh, is through Jesus Christ and his shed blood. Let's go to Matthew 24, verse 3. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, now Jesus and his disciples had walked through the Kidron Valley, down the hill from Jerusalem, up the hill to the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately. Now, which disciples? We go to a parallel passage, and we realize it's not all the disciples, but it's Peter, James, and John, the inner three, and also Andrew, Peter's brother. They went to him privately. They're having doubts. What's going on here? And said, what will... Tell us when will these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, the last part of verse 3 is probably the key passage that we have really got to understand in the Olivet Discourse, so I'm going to go over that in great detail. First of all, let's ask a preliminary question. Why did the disciples approach him privately? Well, John Gill says they probably thought Jesus would be more forthcoming about the future if they talked privately. Figuring Jesus is not going to want to reveal a bunch of stuff about the future, but they might get some inside information if they went to him privately. I'm not really sure what their motives were, but they they went to him by themselves. Now, Jesus said, ask three questions. I'm going to call them question one, two, and three. As we go through the Olivet Discourse, we have to get this in our mind. Question one, when will these things happen? Question one, when will these things happen? Question one, when will these things happen? Question two, what is the sign of your coming? Question two, what is the sign of your coming? Question two, what is the sign of your coming? Question three, what is the sign of the end of the age? What is the sign of the end of the age? What is the sign of the end of the age? Now that you've got those three questions memorized, I'm going to point out to you that all three questions are referring to the same event. I'm going to prove that as we go down, but I just want to state preliminarily that these three questions are all referring to the same event. So when Jesus, when the disciples say, when will these things happen, what they're saying is, Question one, when will these things happen? And when these things happen, that will be the answer to question two, what is, uh, what is the sign of your coming? And question three, and what is the sign of the end of the age? When we see the sign of your coming, and when we see the end of the age, we will know that is when these things will happen. And what things are we talking about, of course, is the tearing down of the temple. So, the tearing down of the temple is the sign of Jesus' coming in judgment, and it happens at the end of the Jewish age. So I've just given you the orthodox preterist interpretation of that verse succinctly. We'll go through it in detail now. First of all, what does these things mean? Question number one, when will these things happen? Well, these things are the destruction of the temple, the sign of his coming, and the end of the age. Because they're all wrapped together in the same event. This is Adam Clark says this. Now there's another interpretation of that. When will these things happen that would this is the futurist dispensationalist type interpretation. When will these things happen? that's referring to the destruction of the temple, and so that'll happen within one generation. But then Jesus pops another, and the disciples pop Jesus another question and by the way, while we 're talking about the end of the temple, what is the sign of your coming at the end of the world and the end of the world? When is that going to happen? So the futurists divide these three questions into two different types: one preterist, the destruction of the temple and the other two questions, questions two and question three, are supposed to refer to the end of the world. I will submit to you that that is not a proper way to go, that all three of these questions are referring to the same event, which is the destruction of the temple in 8070. How do I know that? Well, let's compare the three versions of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, verse three, the verse that we're on now. The disciples asked this, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? That's question two and question three, your coming and the end of the age. Well, when you go to the parallel Passages describing the Olivet discourse. You don't have your coming and the end of the age. All you have is these things. Mark 11, 13, 4 What will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? No, your coming and no, no sign of your coming. Question two and know when is the end of the age? It's not there. Luke chapter 21 verse 7. And what signs will there be when these things are about to take place? The question, the question of the coming of end of the world, the coming, excuse me, the coming of Jesus and the end of the age. Which the future says the end of the world—it's not even mentioned in Mark and eleven. Now, if, if, if they were really asking about something that momentous, the coming of Jesus at the end of the age, don't you think that Mark and Luke would have mentioned that? They didn't even bother to mention it. So, the sign of your coming at the end of the age is just Matthew's elaboration on when will these things take place? And these things are referring to the destruction of the temple when one stone is not left on another. So the question resolves to this. The disciples ask Jesus, when will these things, the destruction of the temple, happen? And when will your coming be at this time when you destroy the temple, when you come in judgment? And point number three, when is the end of the Jewish age? Because when the Jewish temple is destroyed, that's the end of the Jewish age. Jesus gives an answer to that question. Matthew 24, verse 34. I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. There's that expression again, these things. Mark 11, 34, what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Verse 34 in Matthew 24, I assure you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. So these things, the destruction of the temple will happen before 40 years passes away, generations about 40 years. And the sign of your coming of this age is the same thing as these things because Mark and Luke collapsed them, telescoped them all into one expression, these things. So we have a time indicator here. All of this stuff that's going, that Jesus is getting ready to talk about is going to happen before these things take, but, excuse me, before this generation passes away. Matthew 24, verse 34, and this is a key verse, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Now, let's look at question number two. What is the sign of your coming? Now, of course, futurists will say this is coming at the end of time. And because we've been so brainwashed, so preconditioned by Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye, that we always think we hear the word coming. Oh, that refers to the second coming of Jesus. No, it does not. And I want to tell you something. There's nothing as easy to prove as that. I'd bet a million dollars on that one. It's easy. So uh, I'm not going to go through that. By the way, I've got a whole series of teaching on this on YouTube. On the Olivet Discourse, on the Apocalypse Preterist, Preter's Preterist View of Revelation and all. It's under Orthodox Preterism. Is the name of the playlist. I couldn't remember it. Orthodox Preterism. Look that up on YouTube, and I'll go, I go over this in even greater detail. All right, coming does not necessarily mean coming back at the end of the world. Here's an example in Mark 9, verses 9 through 10. As they were coming down from the mountain, this is the Mount of Transfiguration. He, Jesus, ordered them, Peter, James, and John, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept this word to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Now, what I'm trying to show here uh, is to show that the disciples had no idea about Jesus coming back at the end. So if if you say that what is the sign of your coming, meaning coming at the end of the world, that's the disciples asking that question. How can they ask a question, the concept of which they have no idea of? They don't know anything about the coming of Jesus at the end of the world. When Jesus told them to say nothing about the Mount of Transfiguration events until he had risen from the dead, they kept this word to themselves discussing what rising from the dead meant. They didn't even know that Jesus was going to leave them by dying. They didn't know that he was going to rise from the dead, and they certainly had no idea of him coming again at the end of time. That was completely off their radar scope. So how could they have asked The disciples. uh, How could the disciples have asked Jesus a question about which they had no idea? Here's another example of how the disciples didn't know what was going to happen. Matthew 16, verse 21 through 23. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised to the third day. Then Peter took him aside. This is at Caesarea Philippi. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned, he, Jesus, turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns but man's. See, Jesus couldn't believe, Peter could not believe that Jesus would ever be crucified, much less that he would come back at the end of time. Let me cite you an authority on this, John Gill. They, the disciples, quote, they, meaning the disciples, they had no notion of his leaving them and coming again. When he at any time spoke, spake, of his dying and rising from the dead, they seemed not to understand it. Wherefore, this coming of his, the sign of which they inquire, is not to be understood of his coming a second time to judge the world at the last day, but of his coming in his kingdom and glory, which they had observed him some little time before to speak of. Gill is not talking about all of that discourse. He's talking about the Mount of Transfiguration, which I also believe refers to uh, 87, which John Gill does too. And it says that they couldn't imagine of him coming back at the end of time because they didn't understand this idea of dying and rising from the dead. All right, let me give you a quote from Albert L. Roper, Van Book, 1965. The name of the book is, Did Jesus Rise from the Dead? These men, followers and disciples of Jesus, though they were, did not look for a resurrection. While Jesus on several occasions referred to his death and rising again, there is nothing in the record to indicate that the disciples ever glimpsed what he meant. On the contrary, they appear upon each occasion to have received his references with at most only academic interest, as if he spoke of something that in no way concerned them. A notable instance of this attitude is revealed during the descent from the Mount of Transfiguration. It will be recalled that on that occasion Jesus enjoined silence upon Peter, James, and John, the three disciples accompanying him, as to the stirring event recently witnessed by them until the Son of Man should have risen again from the dead. The reaction of his disciples to this and other references by Jesus to his rising again is clearly revealed by the expression of puzzlement recorded by the Gospel historian. Mark, who was undoubtedly quoting Simon Peter, when he states that they kept the saying, questioning among themselves what the rising from the dead should mean. Such was the response to each reference by Jesus to his rising again. The meaning of his revelations to them did not register. They rebuked him even for suggesting his impending death at the hands of the high priest. If they could not envision a crucifixion, The prelude to his rising again, surely it is incredible that they could have foreseen and believed in a resurrection. And I'll add here, if they can't believe in a resurrection, how are they going to believe in Jesus coming back again in his resurrected glorified form? They couldn't. Back to the quote. Indeed, the disciples had been unable to look upon him as doing more than ushering in a new and better temporal state. There's the scholarly opinion. There's the scripture. The disciples were not thinking of the end of the world, folks. The futurist view is is unsupportable. I just don't know how else I can say it. Now, the other view of when this is, this coming, what is the sign of your coming? The preterist view, orthodox preterist view, is that the coming is at the end of the Old Testament Jewish age. Now, the disciples might have gotten the wrong idea about that coming because it's clear that Jesus meant his coming in judgment. They might have been thinking he's going to come back do his judging and then set up a messianic kingdom on earth but actually he came back did his judgment destroyed the rabbinic system and then spread his spiritual kingdom which the disciples might not have understood yet but at any rate the end of the age the sign of his coming is at the end of the old testament jewish age now here's some evidence to support that the parallel olivet discourses in mark and luke don't even mention jesus coming mark 13:4. tell us when will these things happen where's the end of the age and what will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? No end of the age. Luke 21, 7. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? No end of the age. Can you believe that Mark and Luke would not have talked about such an earth-shattering event as Jesus coming back at the end of time? That would be written about, of course, in second coming type, as the journalists like to say. This is big news. Big news. No, well, Mark and Luke don't even mention it. So Jesus, Mark and Luke don't mention it. The disciples don't ask about it. They couldn't be asking about it. They didn't understand about it. It's referring to the coming in judgment in AD 70. That's question number two. Now, when we get down to Matthew 24, 27, there's going to be another mention of coming. The Greek word is parousia, and we're going to. I'm going to give you a lot of examples of how coming can mean something other than a bodily coming. We're not going to do it here. Let's go to question number three. What will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, by the way, it's age, not world. Now, unfortunately, the KGV Translates that word, which is ionos, which from which we get the word eon. They translate that as world, and there's a reason for that because if you at the end of the Jewish age, to the Jew, that would be the end of their world. So it kind of makes sense. But that's not literally what the word means. All you literalist dispensationalists out there, that's not what the word means. It means world. It means uh, age, not world. So we've got some versions like KJV and the ASV, Those are old translations. And, the, and there's a couple of new ones, too, that translated as world. But here's the, tr- the versions that translated as age, the ones I ran down. The NASB, the Amplified, J.P. Green's Literal, the NIV, the Holman Christian Study Bible, the English Standard Version, the New Century Version, the New King James Version, the Revised Standard Version, and the New Revised Standard Version, and Young's Literal. They all translate that word age as it should be. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. To Ionos, that's the Greek, the age, or of the age, viz., the Jewish economy. So Clark uh, just, trans- just says that age means the Jewish economy, which is a frequent accommodated meaning of the word ion. So ion means Jewish economy, the end of the Jewish economy. QED, folks, we get eon from ion, the English word eon from the Greek word ion, and that's obviously a time word. If you're talking about the destruction of the planet, that's not time, that's a thing. In fact, Matthew could have used the Greek word for world, cosmos, which he didn't do. From which we get the word cosmos, he didn't do that. So, that's a slam dunk. The word is age. Now, the Jews expected a messianic age after the current one. Here's a quote from John Gill. A Jewish notion, this idea of age is a Jewish notion, and that a new state of things would commence. The present world, or age, would be at a period, and the world to come, they had so often heard of it from Jewish doctors, would take place. And therefore they ask also of the sign of the end of the world or present state of things in the Jewish economy. Gill uses the KGV translation, the one he was using, but what he meant was the sign of the end of the age or the present state of things in the Jewish economy. So even though Gill is talking about the end of the world, he says it's the end of the Jewish economy. So there we got Adam Clark, we got John Gill. Now the disciples ask, what is the sign of your coming? Well, the sign of your coming... They're referring to these things, which is the destruction of the temple. So what will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the Jewish age? The destruction of the temple. What a perfect sign for the end of the Jewish age, the, that great and holy mammoth temple going down. Perfect. So here's a summary of the three questions again. Let's review this. Question number one, when was the temple going to be destroyed? The answer, before that generation passed away within 40 years. Second question, what was the sign of Jesus' coming? The destruction of the temple. let showed that he'd come in judgment. Question number three, what was the sign of the end of the age? Answer, the destruction of the temple. All right, we're going to have to stop there. For sake of time, we'll take it up again, starting with verse four in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this.